From the Bill of Rights Institute, Fabric of History weaves together U.S. history, founding principles, and what all of this means to us today. Join us as we pull back the curtains of the past to see what's inside. We hear the phrase, the American dream, all the time, but what does it actually mean? In this week's episode of Fabric of History, Mary, Gary, and Aaron explore this question by tracing the origins of one of the most successful families in American history, the Vanderbilts. What do the legacies of some of its most prominent members teach us about integrity and human nature? Okay, so one idea that really permeates American history and the present day, I think it's fair to say, is this concept of the American dream, this rags to riches, this inspirational story. If you work hard, if you persevere, if you're resourceful, and I think, you know, there's a fair amount of luck being in the right place at the right time, you can have great success. And this idea of entrepreneurship and the American dream, it's a huge concept in American history, but it's also a really big thing to wrap your head around. And I think that there are a lot of examples, certainly in the past and even in the present, of people who embody this concept. But because at the Fabric of History, we're really interested in the stories of history, we thought we would explore the story of the Vanderbilt family from Staten Island as our example of this American dream, this idea of the entrepreneur, the person, the family, and what legacy do they leave behind? We still all go visit all of the cottages and homes that they have um, along the East Coast. It's fascinating. Yes, I'm actually coming to you live from the Breakers Cottage in Newport, Rhode Island. I'm, <laughs> I'm not. I wish I were. <laughs> I wish I were. So I think it's worth talking a little about. So who are the Vanderbilts? Where did they come from? And how do they become this example of the American dream? I think it's worth exploring. So it turns out that the Vanderbilts, as I said, they're from Staten Island. They're actually Dutch. And Cornelius Vanderbilt is the the big the heavy hitter. So he is the one who's, who accumulates the family wealth, but he starts, he has a very humble beginning. So he starts a ferry service by the time he's 16 with money from his parents. So um, he left, and he left school to do so. And he just keeps taking advantage. He's very resourceful and takes advantage of the opportunities that are presented to him. So he, he's running this ferry service. His ferry service expands in the War of 1812. Then he moves on to steamships and then he moves on to railroads, and he just becomes fabulously wealthy. So you're fabulously wealthy. What next? Where do you go from there is a, is a really good question. Um, because we started off by saying this concept of the American dream is, is really hard to wrap your head around. And I think we at the Bill of Rights Institute often like to use narratives to, to ground these big concepts in the stories of real human beings. Uh, and the Vanderbilts actually appear in a number of our our resources. Uh, they're, they're mentioned in Docs of Freedom, in the Gilded Age, in some other activities that we have. And so you mentioned Cornelius, and I think that's such a, a great starting point to think about the Vanderbilt family. So Cornelius isn't the first Vanderbilt in New York. The first Vanderbilt in New York goes back to 1651, Jan Vanderbilt. Uh, there's record of, of his family in New York. Um, but it is Cornelius who's who's born in 1794. He's around to 1877. So he's really representing the, the 19th century um, that I think is, is sort of the start of this narrative of the American dream. You, you mentioned the rags to riches and, you know, that money, what was it, $100 that he, he got? to start 
what eventually becomes this empire that he has, you know, but, but he as the quote, the Commodore, I think the story is interesting in juxtaposing his experience versus, as you said, what comes next, those who, who are descendants from him and how the choices they make are, are slightly different because they're already born as a Vanderbilt and that means something. And yet there mm. are choices and there are experiences they, they each individually have. So I think I can think exploring the whole family and, as you said, the legacy they left, not only in the changes they made, but, but even the physical legacy you can look around is a really interesting question of, of not only what's next, but, but who are some other Vanderbilts of note? Yeah, I think it it's kind of interesting. So the Commodore, so he's the one, he's the he is the Vanderbilt that acquires the vast amount of wealth. As Gary said, he's not the first one, but he dies an extremely wealthy man. He's worth $185 billion in 2010 dollars. So that's a lot of money. That's a fair chunk of change. But he doesn't really he doesn't build flashy houses and there's no real ostentatious display of wealth from him. He did like racehorses, so he bought racehorses and that was his big splurge. It's his descendants that are the big spenders. That's a lot of money. I'm still hung up on the hundred and eighty five billion dollars. Like pre income tax too. I mean, these guys are just <laughs> fabulously wealthy. It's how he did it, I think, is an interesting question. And when, right? So so going back to that, it was shipping and railroads. You know, that's a that's such a a an emblem of that time and that technology and, and, and managing that is is a really it's an amazing sort of action to take. You know, I think back to uh, among the things that at BRI we talk about is also virtues. And one that strikes me is, is initiative. We describe initiative as exercising the power, energy, or ability to lead, organize, or accomplish something. So, so seeing that opportunity, doing something about it, you know, and looking around, looking back on the impact of, say, railroads, again, in the 1880s, um, looking back on it, it's like, well, it's obvious, it's so important. But, you know, we're living in a world now where we can look around and say, where are those opportunities? What can we do about it? How can we work with other people? Uh, and seeing that is is really a staggering, staggering ability for him to have had. And we should take a break and dive a little bit deeper. Hello, Fabric of History listeners. Join the Bill of Rights Institute and fellow educators this fall as we explore topics such as women's suffrage, the executive branch, and how to use Socratic discussion with your students. See links in show notes, and we hope to see you soon. Okay, so we gave you a very, like, the Sparknotes version of Cornelius Vanderbilt. So he he has humble beginnings, but he acquires mass amounts of wealth by the time of his death in 1877. And he leaves most of his money to his heir. So he does establish Vanderbilt University, but he's leaving an insane amount of money to his family and his eldest son in particular. But all of his heirs now have this have this name, the Vanderbilt name, and they have a lot of money. And they're born into their own, you know, so this now in 1877, we're in the post-Civil War America, it's the Gilded Age. And we have this Vanderbilt family that's dominating the society of New York. So what does that, what does that mean? So again, Cornelius is sort of working his way up and acquiring the wealth and he's passed on and his family now has their own story to tell. And interestingly, so an interesting family member in particular is um, his grandson, William, whose wife is named Alva. 
and they have a daughter named Consuelo, who actually, in addition to having a fabulous name, has a really interesting story. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because at the time, um, they, of course, just the name Vanderbilt implied the wealth and this notoriety and just them setting up specific example of what a Vanderbilt was. And so even from a young age, Alva trained her daughter Consuelo in the art of being a well-bred young woman. There was this instrument they put her in as help her sit up straight. And it was a steel rod strapped to her shoulders and went down her back and around her head. And just so you learn that perfect posture. And as she got older, uh, Alva wanted Consuelo to have a duchess title and even had Consuelo painted in the style of an English duchess. And so it was almost like they were mirroring what that old British wealth looked like in America. And so Alva ended up taking Consuelo to England to try and find her a husband and ended up settling on the Duke of Marlborough, um, who, according to sources, was not a great catch because he was not incredibly friendly. He was 5'6", um, but he did have one of the best palaces in England, so I guess that you know made up for everything, which was called Blenheim Palace. But um, at this point in time, Blenheim Palace was a wreck. And so his palace was suffering. And so the Duke of Marble receives $2.5 million in Vanderbilt Railway stock as a wedding dowry to Consuelo, which is $64 million today. Um, And so everyone in America is super excited that they're going to have this wedding Um, And the news even said, oh, this is our own American princess, big media frenzy about a fairy tale, which sounds very familiar. Um, But many years later in her autobiography, Consuela, who was 18 years old when she married the Duke, um, said, I spent the morning of my wedding in tears. And that was partly because she had been engaged to someone else and Alva said, no, you will marry the Duke. You're too young and foolish to choose your own husband. Locked her in her room for the last six weeks, um, away from all her friends and any social contact until it was her wedding. Um, And there's a very fascinating political cartoon. We'll make sure to link it on our website. But um, it's a political cartoon of Alva and the Duke's wedding. And it's basically... um, Alva is in her wedding dress and chains. And um, the public very soon realized this was a transactional wedding and marriage. Um, And for the most part, it was. Consuelo was not happy. Uh, She wrote that she had silent dinners with her husband. And her husband, the Duke, actually even said, you're just a link in the chain. Because uh, Mm. the Duke saw this. as a sense of duty for him and uh very like your father gave me money to restore Blenheim Palace and in exchange I got you this wedding dowry um but her two sons do give her a lot of joy and when we were talking about 
the impact and the legacy that the Vanderbilts have for better or for worse based on these human choices that they make. Alva just made these choices for her daughter and whatnot, and, um, as did Consuelo. But it led to Consuelo really finding what gave her joy, and that was a lot of charity work and helping the less privileged. She became a local counselor. Uh, in England, she advocated for the women's right to vote. That's actually how she became close to her mother. Again, the, Alva and Consuelo worked together on women's suffrage. And she also opened a home for single mothers. And of course, finally, the money from her dowry allows Blenheim Palace to be upkept and modernized. We wouldn't have the Blenheim Palace that people tour every day if it weren't for her um, because it was in disrepair before that. And um, side note, fun fact, it was also featured on an episode of Downton Abbey. So I, it's very fascinating. We were talking about the Vanderbilts, not just as a name that we know and associate with wealth, but they were humans. They were a family. And the choices they made and really impacted them on this personal level, like Consuelo mentioning that she was in tears on her wedding morning. Um, but it led to a lot of the things that we see today, like Blenheim Palace um, and her impact on a lot of this charity work. I think Consuelo's story, I think, is really interesting because if you contrast her situation, she's born into this inherited wealth and it's almost like her wealth is a burden because she's forced into this loveless marriage, but she's a duchess, right? That is, that's the thing. And, but again, the Vanderbilt family, they are, they work their way up and they like their success is just, you know, from hard work and they're not born into anything, but they, it's almost like by the time you get to Consuelo, so I guess she's a great granddaughter of the Commodore um, they want that status. They want that title, which in a way is very not American. Like we purposely don't want titles of nobility in our country, but her mother like just had to have that for her. It was the ultimate prize. So I just think that's kind of an interesting, um, like, I don't know, that's kind of taking the story in a full circle. But like you said, she, Consuela is not happy in her marriage, but she made the most of it. She did a lot of good for the world and left a lot of good things behind her. Um, and she did actually end up divorcing the Duke in 1921 and remarried someone else that same year. And she relinquished her title of Duchess. Wow. That's a big so, thing, right? Because this is when there are only so many Dukes. I'm a big Anglophile nerd. There were 27. There's, it's a set number. Time. So like an English Duke yeah. is the prize. It's, it's It means something to be an English Duchess. So that's... And to divorce, I think, back then was considered... You know, it was not something to be taken lightly. So I think she really had a lot of courage well, in she, her own right yeah. to do that. She tried to do it. Um, she actually fell in love in 1906 with her husband's cousin and runs a, off to Paris with him. Um, Ooh. But she... <laughs> That's our next episode. No, it's not. Yeah. No. Well, she knew she could lose her title, her the access to her own fortune and her children because at the time... That was basically considered that the men kind of took over all that, took over the money, still could keep the children. Um, but the Duke of Marble's cousin, Winston Churchill, <laughs> steps in and negotiates um, 
a separation where they lived apart, but still both had access to the children because divorce was so frowned upon. And so they did that for 15 years. When you say these stories, again, it's there is at the same time a mix of opportunity and limitation on every member of the family and every member of the United States and all human beings, right? There's the the contexts have opportunity and limitations. There's no there's no way to get out of those things. So I think that's part of what makes your story really interesting is, you know, we think of dukes and so forth as again, seeming as a, an era of her time as being something, but ultimately it's status, right? So mm-hmm. so that idea of, of status, what does it mean? Uh, the pressures to have status if you're born into a family uh, that, that already has some sort of status. And by status, it's maybe financial. It may be, as you said, titles. Uh, but thinking about that choice, in addition to the choices people have in being in their context, there's also the choices of what does one do with dealing with their own status in life. And I think the Vanderbilts are the perfect example that they all dealt with it a little bit differently. I really was intrigued by what you were saying, Aaron, about the concept of status um, and, and what it looks like from the outside, what it means. Um, and the idea that status isn't itself good, good or evil, right? It's just sort of what happens. Um, I, I just think of an anecdote. So I grew up on Long Island, um, uh, not far from Centerport, where the Vanderbilt Museum is. And this is the Vanderbilt Museum named for a, a descendant, William Vanderbilt II, uh, who, was, who was around the uh, late 1800s. He died in 1944. Um, anyway, the museum is on the grounds or is his former estate, right? So his estate's name was Eagle's Nest. It was this 43-acre estate, beautiful sort of thing. And one would argue a a manifestation of his status. But it also became uh, this amazing museum that that we would go to all the time. And it it was sort of a footnote, if you walked around the museum, that it was this palatial, you know, estate. What really was the focus that we are there for was the educational part. Um, the, the amazing planetarium I went to very frequently as a kid. Um, the, the natural history and, and science parts of the museum. And so, so the perception of the Vanderbilts there was this, you know, educational uh, location that is also this symbol, for lack of a better word, of status on this estate. So it just makes me think about how the the legacy of the Vanderbilts is something you can still see everywhere across the country um, that isn't necessary, is not inherently a something to evaluate good or bad, although that is an interesting question, but rather the impact, the footprint that they had. Their name is associated with so much now uh the vanderbilt university the museums like you mentioned um even i know we were kind of saying that glory vanderbilt in the jeans (laughs) and uh just like the lasting impact that the whole family is so we started with this young man cornelius who leaves school and he starts his own fairy business and he's resourceful and he's you know changes with the times and he amasses this immense fortune. And he is sort of the patriarch of this family that grows so wealthy that they endow Vanderbilt University and they create these museums that little Gary visits on Long Island. And I definitely want to check out. But um, the family, I mean, so they're kind of synonymous with this idea of wealth and status and entrepreneurship, but they were, you know, they were very human and they had choices and difficulties like we did. 
or we do today. So they're very much a product of their time, but I think that human element of their story is is still really interesting. So what do you think? Have you had any interactions with the Vanderbilt family or any interpretations of the American dream that we didn't think about here? Please email us at comments at fabricofhistory.org. And thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. The Bill of Rights Institute engages, educates, and empowers individuals with a passion for the freedom and opportunity that exist in a free society. Check out our educational resources and programs on our website, mybri.org. Any questions or suggestions for future episodes? We'd love to hear from you. Just email us at comments at fabricofhistory.org. And don't forget to visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to stay connected and informed about future episodes. Thank you for listening.